It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am delighted that you made it to class this morning. For this morning's conversation, I'm bringing someone to the front of the class, to the, you know, to the circle, if you will. <laughs> You'll hear more about that later. Who has been working on the issue of justice reform in all of the any issues related to justice reform, which we'll get to in our discussion for some time. Deanna Hoskins is the president and CEO of Just Leadership USA, an organization that elevates and empowers voices of people directly impacted by the criminal justice system. Ms. Hoskins has been committed to the movement for racial and social justice working alongside those most impacted or marginalized for over two decades. And so I want to welcome to the front of the class, Deanna Hoskins. Welcome to the front of the class. Thank you, Eljoy. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I'm so glad that you accepted our invitation, reaching out to have this lengthy conversation. We have some time and, you know, I ran through all of my bullets that I want to talk to you about. So I wanted to get straight into the conversation. But first, since you're at the front of the class, and I know that's not normal for you, because as you told me, you usually like to form people in a circle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but since you're at the front of the class here on Sunday Civics, we want to start by you telling us the story of your first civic action. Thank you. You know, it, it, it's funny because growing up and different things, I never really thought about how to be civically engaged in society, right? It was always focused on what you're going to be when you grow up. And the importance of being civically engaged did not occur to me until my rights to be civically engaged were taken. Um, when I was convicted of a crime in 98 and understanding voting rights, um, just not having the ability. Now, not even the fact that I was voting at the time because I was different, living a different lifestyle, but when I was really trying to get my life together and become a full citizen and participate in my adult responsibilities, realizing that individuals with felony convictions in some level could not did not have the right to vote in Ohio. Now in Ohio, it is different. Um, you only lose that right during the term of your incarceration. But at that time, it, it was voting and it was around 96 in a local election that I started hearing about people with felony convictions can't vote. And it was a misconception um, that I had to learn for myself that it was only if I was incarcerated at the state that I couldn't vote, but the fact that the community and even the Board of Elections was saying people with felony convictions couldn't vote. So the misconception, um, not only around voting was my first civic activity, it actually started to open the door to the work that I do of the misconceptions that people with felony convictions were living with, the myths um, that was impacting Black people at a higher rate. That's so, I mean, we've talked about that for, on the show for some time about in the community, community's perception 
and conversations, how that impacts how we live our lives and how that, while there may not be a law on the books or a policy on the books, people's thought that it is, you know, or isn't how that can infect people. And we're going to talk about that a bit later about the language that we use as it pertains to the justice system and how we should alter that and, you know, what we should use instead, but also how that contributes to our views about those who are marginalized, those who are justice impacted. But first, I think back in December, the FBI put out their annual crime statistics through its uniform crime, what is it? Uniform crime reporting program. (laughs) And we can see local news all across the country have been leading with headlines of a rise in violent crime. And when we had the Brooklyn district attorney on recently, he cautioned us about the way data like that is used to stoke fear. Can you give some greater context to that? So, yes. Um, One of the processes of keeping people held hostage or getting people to favor what actions, if it's over-incarceration, over-in-policing, is to highlight different crimes, right? And we know that criminal activity instills fear in someone, especially violent crimes. And what I'll say the Brooklyn DA is speaking about is, in our minds, we may, when someone says violent, we're probably thinking of murder, rape, very notorious, um, heinous crimes. And then sometimes if I rob you with a butter knife, it is an aggravated robbery and considered a violent crime, right? If I, if I show a gun in some kind of way. So even how they index, what we call index and categorize violent crimes can be um, very deceiving and use as fear-mongling tactics. One of the things that I've always asked is crime stats and data always comes out in a manner that doesn't educate the public. So, and I'll use my hometown for one here in Ohio. I know when I was working on violent crimes and gang um, participation, well, I knew come March, late February, early March, shootings, and and, um, we were just focused on shootings, shootings spike. And then they hit a high spike around June, July, August. And when the fall starts to set in, they start tapering off. Why? More people outside, more people hanging out, no activities for young people to be active in. Um, So even asking places, the FBI doesn't get that. The FBI just gets everyone's data. But if you show, say, well, what is the trend of the violent crime in that area during these certain months? And did that area, was that area inclusive? And what we know media is fighting for social media um, content, televised content. And that what we also know is the media has become so depressing. It, It doesn't show us the benefits and the things that are going on in our area. It shows us the high crime. So it seems like it's constantly coming to us. So if you're looking at your local news media and there's crime going on in your city, then you get on Facebook and there's crime being videotaped across the country, it actually becomes overwhelming. And the utilization of the psychology to instill fear. So when we say, hey, we don't have money for mental health and substance abuse, we're putting more money in law enforcement to over-police, to militarize our police. And we know what communities are going to be impacted by that militarization and that over-surveillance. 
is the most impoverished incarcerated. Uh, marginalized communities in our city. So I ask people to be mindful, read the information, dissect it, don't just look at the data and say, well, where was this report at last year? But what was last year? We were on a COVID shutdown. What was it the year before? Look at the five-year trend. Of course, we don't want to see violent crime, but let's look at the trend and not take the word of individuals who are controlling the money and actually justifying. We know right now the narrative has been defund the police. Everybody's trying to justify why we shouldn't defund the police. That's because we let them control the narrative, which comes into some of that language we're going to talk about as well. So what, and I get this, right, is that, well, we can't put more money in building youth programs or centers because we only have so much money. And instead we need to keep people safe because the grandmas walking the street can't get hit over the head, you know, right? So mm -hmm. it feeds into this narrative. Well, you have to give up something and which we've talked about here, right? Is the scarcity, the, the fear of scarcity, right? Like if mm -hmm. I give a million dollars here, then I'm not going to be able to spend a billion dollars over here. Like the math doesn't even math right, right? <laughs> you know, but like the youth groups can be asking, all we need is a million dollars for this space to be converted into space. And they're like, yeah, but we got to spend a billion dollars on, I'm just like, wait, but one million, <laughs> just like, the math ain't mathing. <laughs> like, yeah, let's be honest, you know, my, my uh, response to that always is, police don't keep us safe. Police respond to crime. They are after fact of the crime. So to say you're going to give them more money to have more police to show up in my hood, it, it, it tell me how they're preventing crime. Police don't prevent crime, right? They respond to the crime. They do these things. What are some of the prevention methods that can be utilized? And it is investment in communities, people coming from thriving, healthy communities. When people are vested, when people are whole, people have other activities to do. The worst thing that I always say that has happened in marginalized communities is when city council in any city starts talking about, we need to help our people and all of this. Don't tell me what you want to do. Show me your budget. Because your highest budget item is going to be your priority. And in every city, every county, every state, I bet you as law enforcement is the number one bill. Yeah. The last well, and then people auto, and then it's like an overcorrection because this is what's happening in New York City, right? Well, not only in New York City, we, as you just mentioned, this happened in Congress, right? And just listening to the language of Cory Book, uh, Senator Cory Booker, who I hope to have on the show. So please, like staff that is listening, let's have a real conversation about this, right? Because people overcorrect. I've heard him on interviews and others when people challenge him on defunding police peace. And he's like, people don't want less cops in their community. And I'm like, sir, why are you overcorrecting you right. know that's not the issue you come from Newark <laughs> like you know that's not the issue the issue at large is as you mentioned police are responding to crime we're trying to prevent it we're also trying to find alternatives because it has not been working to just lock people up and destroy their lives that has not been working because we still have crime I don't understand like I don't understand how people again not only do they math not add up but then their cause and effect did they not do the cause and effect thing in school. Like we, for, <laughs> for so long, we've had police responding to crime. We are trying to divert resources to actually prevent crime and create more holistic communities that will then therefore reduce crime. But I don't, did, I, Deanna, 
Do right. people need to go back to primary school on cause of effect in math? Oh my God, you know, I'll be on calls with legislators and I have to cut my camera off because I'll be sitting in the house throwing my hands up. One, did you take civic? Do you remember? I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill. Um, But when when we do this cause and effect, think about it. The problem is everybody wants to save us. Black people, our communities have always been saved by everybody else without taking our conversation and our need in consideration, right? We're the only population no one brings to the table. Prior to... May 2020, um, when the world exploded around George Floyd, all of this came to the forefront. Just Leadership was leading the Close Rikers campaign in New York City. We didn't ask to just close Rikers. We had a plan that said build communities. So take the cost investment, the overinvestment in corrections and um, incarceration and invest it back in communities. And it was the communities that was most harmed by incarceration of Rikers that created that plan through community forums, engagements and everything. So before the world started saying defund the police, Just Leadership had a platform called Build Communities, which was the shift of the cost savings back investment back into the most marginalized communities. So when everyone started saying defund the police, we're out here saying, no, 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 because if you just start screaming something and you don't control the narrative, the opposition is gonna control the narrative. And that is what has happened with defund the police. The opposition controlled the narrative to use it against us, those of us who were actually screaming for it. And so when I hear people saying, we're not defunding the police, you're using a scare tactic because you know that's not what it is. This is about building communities. This is about investing in communities. But because we're so apt to just start screaming without a strategy, we didn't control the narrative in the manner we should have. So now you have people in Congress coming from Jersey, from the community, saying we're not going to defund police from Newark. You Come on, out. you know what? The, but it's uh, think about it. I can't step in there because they have controlled the narrative. And if I say that literally, I'm going to lose all strategy, yeah. all colleagues that I have on my side. But You don't have to. This is where politics, if you want to play politics, play politics. Use their game. Every time they bring it up, bring it back and frame it to what it is. Don't just let it go saying we don't want that. You know that's not what we're hollering for. You know that's not what we're screaming. Yeah. And particularly in, you know, their background, and I'm just using Senator Booker as an example, who we know knows better, right? (laughs) (laughs) Think, Eljoy. I just, yeah, we think. Cause some moves, I'd be like, okay, Senator Booker, really? That who told you that? Did you, you must move out of that building where you walking through the hood now? Because oh, nobody yeah. in the hood told you that. I so, love uh, America. I call him America's vice principal. I love him, and so we go, we, we go, we go, we go, we go hold hope that he does know better and that this is a simple strategy. We'll see when he comes on Sunday civics, which is my open invitation again before, but we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to talk, go back to that conversation we talked about before about the language that we use and how it contributes to those arguments we mentioned before. So we'll be right back more Sunday civics. All the problems, all the things that you think that 
what you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, and we are talking with Deanna Hoskins, who is the president and CEO of Just Leadership USA. Deanna, thank you again for joining us in the circle. I'll use in the circle for, for now. But in your recent op-ed, I think it was for the Washington Post, you made an argument about the language that we use as it pertains to justice reform and how it can impact the argument. And we talked, you you briefly touched upon it uh, a little bit in our earlier discussion, but I wanted you to talk a bit more about that, whether it's offender, convict, criminal and talk a bit about how the language we use has an impact on our ability to reform or abolish, <laughs> if you will, some of the systems that are set up in our justice system. Yes. I, I think it's really important to identify people as people. And one of the things, you know, the eight, um, late, great Eddie Ellis, who was kind of the leader who formerly incarcerated and came out, penned a letter that basically said, if you continue to identify me as my crime, you continue to identify me as a convict, an offender, an inmate, offender, inmate. You're not. You're undervaluing who I am as a person, and you're undervaluing the process of what you say corrections and rehabilitation is of me serving that time, correcting the behavior, and coming out and being a whole person. So when individuals talk about it, there's a concept that goes with certain terms, right? So when you say offender, certain people think certain things um, and they don't give people whole. And one of the comments that I like to say is nobody calls a pastor a sinner because he had a life before he became a pastor. They don't judge him on where he's been. They judge him on where he's going. Why can't people who are convicted of a crime be judged on where they're going and not where they're being? We are the only population that has to hold on to that scarlet letter F, felon, held against us and be identified in a very dehumanizing way and not saying, no, I'm a mother, I'm a woman, I'm a sister, I'm an auntie, I'm a president of an organization. When you put that title on me, it starts to devalue who I am. I'm a person. I'm a person first, and that's how I should be addressed as a person because I'm no longer living that life from 20 years ago. Um, So we talk about the value of language just in how you move the agenda. And we talk about that in the terms of criminal justice reform. It's going to hinder our ability to move forward because the overrepresentation of Black and Brown people as individuals who have been impacted by the criminal justice system, living in a country that now what I've been screaming for 10 years that you know, the system is racist. It was built on racist legacy of slavery. People are starting to see it. And people in the criminal justice arena, everything is opposed to, or we start to leave out certain people because we're not valuing who they are. And even in legislation, um, when I worked at the DOJ under the Obama administration, we had a memo. We could not use the word offender, inmate, or convict in grant proposals, in legislation, anything. That was disbanded under the Trump administration 
because it started to devalue and dehumanize and justify, again, the moving of resources from programs of reentry into the community back into militarization of the law enforcement departments. You know, I before I knew about the impact, and thank you for bringing up Eddie Ellis, who I, I also had the pleasure to organize with and, and meet, albeit very briefly. And I thought about, you know, within NAACP, we call the committee that addresses issues, we call it the Criminal Justice Committee, right? And I attempted to change it within our branch, we call it the Justice Reform Committee instead, trying to strip the language and, and, and think about that. And I even think about myself, right? So <clears throat> I um, am someone who, which I know is a stigma that a lot of like, you know, middle-class housewives have, what do I watch on TV? Mm-hmm. My, as my husband calls it, crime. So no, it doesn't matter the title of the show, the movie, the thing or whatever. Over the weekend, I asked my husband, I was like, come and cuddle and watch TV with me. He's like, I don't want to watch crime. All you <laughs> watch crime. And I don't know that my mother does it. My sisters do it. We'll sit and, you know, they're on the West Coast and we'll sit and we'll watch on Hulu together. Just random, you know, crime shows, everything, you know, something on ID Discovery or whatever. And, you know, all of these different things, whatever. And I'm trying to reckon like how that is connected to my perception of, you know, justice reform is just like, what does it say about me that I sit on the couch and it's just like, I'm relaxing, making a holiday reef, watching ID discovery and crime. <laughs> like, what, like, what am I, what, what, what am I um, exposing myself to in terms of language, in terms of what is acceptable, in terms of police behavior, because you're watching it and they're solving crime on crime. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so, right. Like, what am I getting from the law and order SUV, you know, SVU and like what, but but it's most folks are watching this, right. Like are engaging in this and we are ingesting a little bit of propaganda, probably a lot of propaganda Mm -hmm. in terms of what, police are, what police, federal agents or whatever, what they're doing with their days or actually solving crime when in reality, their ability to solve crime is pretty low. Really low. But it's funny you say that because I'm the same way. Um, (laughs) Like when you said law and order, I'm like, oh, that's too slow for me. I like first 48 snap. (laughs) But what I realized, um, Definitely like you, like my Sundays used to be snapped all day, right? Um, and I think it's because a lot of times it was the reality of understanding how people snapped, what could be done. And I started looking at crime, those type of reality crime shows different. Uh, when I watched First 48 and people are being integrated, I started looking at it different instead of from the prospect of, yeah, you, you took someone's life, but then I look at the remorse the trauma, the the, imag- the illusion of the lifestyle that is happening in our communities, right? That, and I always try to figure out how, how do we get to the bottom of that? How do we save him before he pulls a trigger? Because there's a whole bunch of pookies in our communities, right? That are living this illusion lifestyle. But I also think it gives this adrenaline run to a life that I really don't want to be a part of, but the fact that it occurs in some kind of way, right? And what I also know is I pay attention. If you look at um, 
snap first 48, even what they title and call people, um, I've never heard on snap talk about inmate or offender. They always say suspect, meaning they're actually utilizing constitutional rights of a person, the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. Um, and most people don't think about that, right? Because I'm always like, did they break his constitutional rights? No, they can, they say suspect, meaning there's an accusation. You're the suspect of that accusation. But the Constitution says you have a right of presumption of innocence until proven guilty. Now, we utilize bail um, overly around, but those are the types of crimes that we're saying, even in New York City, when we did bail reform, bail is to be utilized for the most serious accusations of crime and not individuals jaywalking, drug paraphernalia, and different things of that nature. But I think the innate human adrenaline rush of our lives and what gives us excitement um, until we get tired of it. Because I used to watch Real Housewives of whatever, Atlanta, Beverly Hills. And after a while, I was like, I can't do this no more. It, it's, I'm over it. It became too much. Um, but you're right, the mystery, the suspense, of things that are actually occurring um, actually does some type of adrenaline rush. I haven't identified what it's doing to me yet. I just really start looking at it from different, different angles, the uh, impact on families. Um, I remember me and my son was having a conversation and he always said, you're watching First 48 again. But I, but I harp on the fact that nobody won. Two families lost, right? Typically, young kids are growing up without their father and the family, two families, right? So the family of the deceased and the family of the uh, person who committed the crime are now plucked from our community, not being productive members of our community, sitting in correctional facilities. The children are growing up without parents, building this, re this repetitive process. Um, no healing. That's the one thing. Police always come and say, hey, we arrested them. No healing of the trauma that was just inflicted on that family. So we're letting that trauma stew in our communities, which actually starts to turn up in very defensive modes because nobody teaches our community how to deal with trauma. So that's what I write to producers like, this is okay, but we got to start changing the narrative and not normalizing crime. Because for me, reality TV is normalizing it. Get a t-shirt, release some balloons, have a barbecue on that person's birthday. Nobody talked about the trauma instilled in that family. Nobody addressed the trauma that is in now in that community of everybody who shows up. Let the trauma stew. And what we know, trauma untreated actually becomes actions uncontrollable. Yeah. And I think about, you know, as you talk about that, about the lack of a, a addressing the trauma, I also think about go going back to something you said in earlier about not including community in the justice part mm -hmm. um, of the justice system. Because, you know, as part of my series of public safety requires community, right? We don't include community in the justice part, right? You're included if you have to testify, if you have to point out people, whatever. But is there a role for in our reimagining of a justice system, what role community overall has, right? I think about that a number of ways. One, watching those shows, right? And everything from Snapped to the serial killers to, you know, American Greed, which is another yes. favorite one of mine, right? If you go to community, right, 
they can see and understand how someone who is trying to, you know, who's being bullied, who's being harassed, would join a gang and ha- like be pressured into doing something that they really didn't want to do, but it's a, a, a way to keep their their family safe or their community safe. And that's just what happens versus someone who is like stealing people's retirement money. They're like, that dude deserves, like he is deliberate. He knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't care about the consequences. The weight of that for, for some people in the community may be more than the kid who joined the gang and had to sell, you know, not had to, but, you know, end up selling, you know, drugs in the community in order, because if he didn't, this would happen, right? Like the weight of that, right? And so if you have community involved, not only in safety overall in the prevention, but also in the, what are the repercussions, you know, of your action, Like, what does that look like? I'm intrigued by, I don't know, right? But I'm intrigued about, like, if you have community involved in that process, you know, number one, I think the trauma can get dealt with, right? And two, there is something about your responsibility or your repercussions are to the community in which you still live versus the man or the government Im- imposing repercussions upon you, right? So I, I'm, I'm also thinking about f- from that perspective, right? Does it, similar to like, you know, for our kids, it hurts more when you tell them I'm disappointed in you or you've, you know, done this to harm the family or you've done this to harm your community versus someone outside of your community imposing what the justice is for your bad behavior. You know, when you think about it, I just want to do a walkthrough of being Black in America. And what I tell people is being Black in America is traumatizing within itself, right? You're doomed. So I'm a person born to impoverished, drug-addicted mother. Father, trauma, right? Trauma while I was even in the womb. Um, Get out. We're home, we're in the community, we're in an impoverished community. My mother's in substance abuse, my father ends up incarcerated. So I'm living in this chaotic lifestyle. No telling what has possibly occurred to me in that process of living in that type of environment with my mother, or I'm ending up in foster care where we know some things happen. But I'm going through life with all these very traumatic experiences, going through life without the sense of feeling whole as an individual. But the system is not paying attention, right? The system's job was they plucked me from my mother. And what we know about a child, I don't care what a mother does, a child loves their mother unconditionally, right? But no reunification, no no survival of trauma. We pluck children into foster care, trauma. Nobody treats the trauma, just we gave you a better life to live. Nobody's dealing with the fact you took me from the one person in my life that I'm connected to no matter what, my mother. Child grows up acting out. And we know in our communities, acting out has went from childhood behavior to, in some cases, criminal behavior, right? We have more police officers in our urban schools than we do school counselors to address the issue and the trauma. Now I'm acting out. What do get, what does a gang do for an individual? Gangs are a family. Gangs are loyal to each other. So everything I've been earning that you took for me, I just found in this game. 
They gonna feed me, they gonna make sure I'm okay, they gonna make sure I have clothes and different things of that nature. So the nature of the activity doesn't even click to the individual because the feeling of wholeness is being met in some manner. I, I feel safe for the first time in my life, right? Because when I was living with my mother, I was in an unstable environment, unsafe. When you pulled me out into foster care, I was not safe. I didn't know the people whose house I was. Y'all just landed me in this house. Y'all don't even know what happened in this house. And in some cases, we're hearing a sexual abuse on male and female foster children who were afraid to even tell about it because where am I going to go next, right? And the biggest role was foster kids' biggest fear is ending up in an institution of foster children. So I can't tell nobody I'm stuffing this trauma. I I'm stuffing all this trauma. And then I found this group of people that may be doing some things. But the fact that they give me the sense of family and the sense of connection that every human being earns for, this is where I belong and I'll ride and die for my family. I'll ride and die for my family. So not even understanding the psychological of why gangs exist, right? Um, you get to prison, you find that game. But I, I wanna break this down to you of how society has normalized violence. In the community, marginalized community, a, a drive-by shooting happens, someone dies, you know, our children in our community see a, a mural, a memorial with teddy bears, cameras, t-shirts, right? Got to walk past it every day to go to school, normalizing it. In a white community, a kid could commit suicide on a Saturday. Monday morning, grief counselors are at that school for those kids to show that is not a normal process and there's a process of griefing. We haven't even taught our kids how to grieve. We give them a t-shirt to say men don't cry and walk past them teddy bears every day of that individual who used to be in your mother's house or that you knew your friend's father. We have normalized violence in certain communities. We do nothing to address the trauma. But in that other community, it can happen on a Saturday when school was not in session. On Monday morning, grief counselors are at the school for the children and the staff to say that is not a normal behavior. We wanna make sure you have a way to understand it and grieve it out. That does not happen in the hood. We get some teddy bears and a camera and a t-shirt. Mm. We're gonna take another break <laughs> on that note. And then when we come back, I wanna talk more, I think you mentioned this earlier, about reducing the population of those who are incarcerated. And then your thoughts on the Biden administration's clemency or their, at least their tip that they are looking to be more racially aware in the clemency uh, process. So we'll do that when we come right back. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We're with Deanna Hoskins from Just Leadership USA. And Deanna, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the Biden administration, particularly heading into the midterm election. Folks are either disappointed um, with what the administration has or has not been doing. 
or they recognize the political realities that exist, whether it be, you know, not a, a great majority in the Senate and ability to bring things to the floor. And certainly we talked about earlier about the failure to bring some sort of law enforcement reform from the Senate. But, you know, one conversation I just saw briefly some articles about it was about the Biden administration's plan to address clemency and um, pardons and at least some signaling that they're looking to be more racially inclusive in terms of that process. For a lot of people, that process is not something they follow on a regular basis. It's not something that they actually know how to right you know how to address how to get through a process i'm interested because i know just leadership has also commented on and made some commentary on the issue and wanted to elevate it to give you an opportunity to talk about your perspective on pardons and racial justice thank you i, I first want to address the question when you talked about people's disappointment in an administration to move the needle and, you know, I, I, I think about it, having worked in government, and, and I think about it taking over organization, that when you walk into chaos, you have to prioritize as the leader of that organization. And what you prioritize that's impacting the masses may be very disappointing to certain segments of population, right? Because what's important to me is criminal justice. Uh, what's important to me is what are we going to do? Are we going to give clemency to the 4,500 individuals that the Trump administration released during COVID only to find out we're in the middle of a pandemic? We had a president walk into a country, um, then the Afghanistan thing. So when we look at the roles, I have to remember, yeah, my issue is important to me, just like somebody else's issue is climate change and somebody else's is disability rights and different things. Those are important to us. But as a leader of a country, how do I prioritize? Because as a leader, I can't do everything in an organization or an infrastructure when I walked into complete chaos. But I also uh, understand the process of what needs to happen. I will say the Biden administration has created an office in the White House to take a look at the clemency and pardon process. And that happened because of the unethical way that the last administration issued pardons and commutations. They issued pardons and commutations based on who had relationships with them. Not the hundreds and thousands of applications that have been sitting on an attorney's desk. People who literally became friends, people who actually were friends of other millionaires, um, people who didn't even put in an application for pardons were getting pardons um, so the ethical application of how pardon and clemencies had been issued is what the Biden administration is paying attention to and saying, we're bringing this into the White House. We want to investigate the process. How has the process even happened before? And how do we set that process that you never get that unethical behavior overstepping? And I'm going to free all my friends or everyone who supported me and my chaos to issue these pardons on the last day. Um, what is the process of, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, love the fact that people were pardoned um, from life sentences because they were over-sentenced and over-incarcerated, but the fact that you were released out of prison from a life sentence because a celebrity seen you, when there are so many other people who were over-sentenced as well, 
but then you and that celebrity then go back to free other people, but then you got a full pardon from even the community supervision of your sentence over people who've been out here in this community for 20 years doing good work because of your celebrity connection. So the ethic and the credibility of that office is shot. Um, it became a process. It became that pay to play. I know you. I won't support the Biden administration if you pardon commute my friend because we want to get into the cannabis industry. And she has a felony conviction, a federal felony conviction. Um, and you had celebrities who played that game, black celebrities. I'm not going to support them if this is what you do. I'm not going to use my celebrity status to support this administration if this is what you give me. And that promise and that friend, that handshake was delivered. And now we're watching this celebrity just invest in 65 million cannabis tech world, right? It became that game, the money game. It was about who you know. So reestablishing the ethics of that. But also when people are disappointed in administration, I want to show the politics of this. So at the end of COVID, at the end of the last administration, the CARES Act, 4,500 people were released from correctional facilities because of COVID. That 4,500... There was no rhyme or reason. There was no metrics used of, oh, these people are 12 months to being released. These people are certain things. And shifting of people in correctional facilities. If you have a 15, a, a year sentence, we're going to move you to make sure we get the people who are medically vulnerable out the door or people who are close to release. 4,500 was just released. And in the bar memo, it says at the end of the pandemic, those people have to return to prison. So advocates are calling for, why do I have to return to prison? It is stressful. They should not have to return. They're at home taking care of their parents. They're doing all this. Here's the political problem. It was a political ploy. The one political, I'm going, this administration is going to lose the advocates if that 4,500 has to go back to prison. Why? Because you have Biden, who was the co-creator of the 94 crime bill that massively destroyed black and brown communities. And you have uh, Vice President Harris, who was an overaggressive prosecutor in California known for incarceration of black men, sending people back to prison. The Republicans can get that party again. And we already know Trump's campaign. Thirdly, there was no process, right? So there's no process to say, oh, these people who were released are 24 months to being released anyway. No, you got people who still got 15, 20 years on their sentence to do. There was no process. It was a setup and a deploy to actually break down their ability. When you talk about the police reform, the Republicans are doing exactly what they did to Obama to not communicate. Tim Scott said the reason the conversation broke down was because of defund the police. The National Police Association came back and said that wasn't the reasons. And Tim Scott has not come back to apologize to the American people. We tell you what we want. It's this ploy. And I think for us, not understanding people play politics with our lives and not understanding. So it's not a simple wipe of everyone who was being released. What is the fairness of that when I'm actually already researching the clemency process to have credibility? So you got this administration who was set up by the previous administration caught between a rock and a hard place. Do I continue to do what the last administration do and just do a blanket clemency to everyone who was released because of a pandemic? Or do I try to restore credibility to this office of a process? Because guess what? There are some people who have an application on that desk and been on that desk for 10 years that was not released here. So where's the credibility and how do I course correct that? 
without somebody getting mad. Woo. That's a lot. <laughs> and it's a lot to put in context that there are a number of things on the table and at stake that it's not just a, a clean or clear process. And it's going to take some time, unfortunately, to sort of really stand up a process that will be fair, that will be inclusive. And, you know, quite frankly, that educated me in terms of, you know, what's at stake in the process. I knew a little bit of it, but not the full extent. So, and, and it's really, you know, um, I always tell people, I'd be like, I wouldn't want to be in this administration right now. Because to the public, when it's your interest, when it's your passion, when it impacts your life, that's the only important thing to you, right? But you have an administration who's sitting dead smack in of chaos. And when yeah. I say chaos, um, there was a destroying from the inside out of our democracy. And people and we don't know the the full the the full extent. Because I didn't know that they I know that they had let people out. I didn't know that they were supposed to return. Oh, there's, um, there's literally a memo. That's yeah, I didn't know that. End up, which is why, here's the thing, which is why people don't under, we have gotten used to it. We're still under a federally declared pandemic. They have not recalled that yet. And because certain things like this are at stake, because once they recall that pandemic, student loans going to go back into play. People got to return back to prison. You know what I'm saying? So, but our country, we ain't even paying attention that, oh, we're still in the middle of a federally declared pandemic. It hasn't been recalled because there are so many things on the books that they walked into that has a catchphrase that makes them look horrible, has to return to prison during a declared pandemic, have to return to prison. Right. The memo. Well, talk, talk about uh, that because there was, you know, I, I know here in New York City, a focus and still a focus about the impact that COVID had on incarcerated people and not getting access to treatment, not having the resources available to even address infection rates that may have been running rampant throughout jails and other detention centers and federally, federal centers. And even now, I know it has contributed a little bit to the conversation around Rikers. And I'm, I want to end our conversation um, on that because we're about to close. But, you know, talk a bit about how COVID largely has impacted incarcerated people. So let's be honest, COVID has made it national and it has everyone's attention now. But correctional facilities have been dealing with infectious diseases, climate change for years, right? Hurricanes came. Louisiana had an evacuation plan for cats and dogs. Correction, people in correctional facility were put on a bridge praying that the water didn't come out, but we was airlifting cats and dogs out of New Orleans, right? We realized at the height of COVID that correctional facilities, jails and prisons were the only congregate living areas that were not mandated to have emergency evacuation plans to preserve the lives of the individuals. Nursing homes have them, hospitals, college campus, even business offices have it. What is the plan if an emergency breaks out to preserve the lives of the individuals in this plan, in this facility? They do have a plan if the facility becomes threatened, what is the strategy to get staff out, but nothing to protect the lives of the individuals. And we saw that during COVID. So we know correctional facilities can't have um, access to PPE um, emergency protective clothes. There's no social distancing, right? The inability of Rikers, we realized there wasn't even hot water to wash your hands. And when we ran out of sanitizer, 
they could manufacture the sanitizer, but it was a contraband if they got caught with it. So all these elements, right? And Rikers is another story around the conditions of confinement. But COVID made it uh, relevant. And to show you the dehumanization, even when the CDC came out with the vaccines and they actually broke down groups of priority, group 1A was congregate living areas, nursing homes, um, different things. Prisons were literally took out of group 1A and put to the end of the line, the last group, dehumanizing and devaluing the most vulnerable situation that had been identified by the CDC, right? And that, and that goes back to our early conversation about how we internalize language. It was like, wait, you're putting convicts ahead of, you know, regular people? Exactly. Not but it was around the vulnerability of the living situation that people in congregate living area mm -hmm. were at highest risk because there was no separation. But because prisons fit there, there was no way they, oh, you got to go to the end of the list. Now they become the most vulnerable, right? So what we did at Just Leadership, we launched what's called the Just Us. And we're pushing for legislators to, across the country, adopt emergency management style policies of how you decarcerate during a pandemic or an emergency. But what you also leave in place, because what happened in prisons, people were uh, segregated, isolated, if they were thought to test positive which is solitary confinement, which has actually been constitutionally in some areas deemed dehumanizing. So this whole dehumanization of individuals incarcerated, Senator Duckworth has introduced a um, copy of it called the Correctional Facilities Care Act on a federal level. We're introducing language in New York as well. But building that process that our lives, when we're incarcerated, we are literally thrown away and devalued um, and dehumanized, even in the protection of our, li our lives, is the last on the, um, the totem pole. I had a friend I grew up with, and I remember his sister calling me at the height of COVID. He had a five-year sentence in a federal facility in Indiana. And all she could say was he was not sentenced to life. Um, he passed away from COVID at the height of COVID. He had asthma and these other issues and was complaining that he couldn't breathe and they kept giving him treatment saying, go back. But her question, her thing was, he was sentenced to a five-year sentence. He was not sentenced to life. And the, the devaluing of his life, the paying attention to his medical condition was not there. But when people are sentenced to correctional facilities, they're the only individuals who get free health care. The judge sentenced you to the custody and care of the state. And the state neglects those individuals when they don't have the proper plans in place. If I don't take care of my child, if I don't pay attention to their medical and my child dies and they determine it was medical neglect because I didn't pay attention, I can be criminalized for that. We don't hold the state accountable for the individuals in their custody and their care. Ooh, on that note, I'm going to have to have you back, Deanna, because I have a whole other conversation about how we reduce the population of jails, prison, detention overall. But I want to thank you for taking the time and the opportunity to join us this morning. I know you've not only fed my soul, but sort of, you know, earned the place at the front of the class in educating me <laughs> about certain aspects of justice reform. And it's going to take some time, but not a long time for us to change our language and to change our strategies and how we deal with these issues. Deanna, thank you so very much. And thanks to all of you uh, for joining Sunday Civics this morning. We'll be back next Sunday with more ways for you to take civic action.
Have a good one. It's cool.